Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings from your blessedly genial host, John Derbyshire, with a survey of the passing Charivari. Politics is heating up, New York City's in a mess, London's going off the rails, and Pancake Day came and went. There's a show business birthday to be acknowledged and commemoration of a saint's day to be noted. A busy week then. Off we go. Your genial host is a resident of New York State's 1st Congressional District. It's Suffolk County on Long Island, the outer outer eastern suburbs of New York City. A mile and a half west of my house is the county line, running north to south down to Cold Spring Harbour. That's the county line, mind, not the city line. There's a whole other big fat county between us and the city. We're out in the sticks here. If I stroll westwards that mile and a half and cross the county line, I am then in New York State's 3rd Congressional District. Still the suburbs, but no longer quite so outer-outer. The district, in fact, includes a chunk of eastern Queens, which is one of the five boroughs of New York City. Wikipedia tells me that New York's third is, quote, the wealthiest congressional district in New York, and in 2022 was the fourth wealthiest nationally, end quote. Wow. Perhaps the next best thing to being rich is living near rich people. I really should stroll over to the third. Some of that prosperity might rub off on me. New York's third has been famous in recent years on account of its congressional representative, George Santos, whose name I am sure you've heard. Santos, a Republican, won his House seat in the 2022 midterms. He formally took that seat in January last year, but was expelled in December after 11 months of exposures about his sensationally bogus biography and manifold campaign finance shenanigans. He is the only Republican ever to have been expelled from Congress. There's glory for you. His expulsion, of course, necessitated a special election for someone to replace him. That election took place Tuesday this week. It was observed with considerable interest all over. For one thing, a GOP win would fortify the party's very slim majority in the House, while a loss would make it even slimmer. For another, we wanted to see if it offered any hints as to how this fall's general election might go. George Santos's election back in the 2022 midterms was a GOP triumph. 
for five House terms, which is to say ten years, Democrats had held the seat. Steve Israel for two terms, and then Tom Swasey for three. Swasey retired in 2022 to run for governor, but he lost in the Democratic primary. The midterms gave us Santos, a Republican, a midterm poke in the eye to the Biden administration. It wasn't an altogether sensational upset. Republican Steve King had held the third district for the GOP for 20 years before Steve Israel flipped it in 2012. Although, as always with congressional districts, there's been some tweaking of district boundaries, some slight additions and subtractions over the years. There was, nonetheless, considerable GOP cheering when Santos won the seat in 2022. Before, of course, before his character defects became known. Of New York State's 26 congressional districts, the third is one of only five that voted for Biden in 2020, but elected a Republican in 2022. Go third. But it's been Santos that has had to go, yielding to the warm embrace of his attorneys. And, as I said, there was a special election to replace him on Tuesday this week. The Democratic candidate for the election was Tom Swasey, the guy who held it for three terms before retiring to run unsuccessfully for governor. 61 years old, born and raised in the 3rd District, well-seasoned in local politics, Swazi is a smart, nimble political operator with many friends and presumably many donors in the district. As evidence of his nimbleness, I note that Swazi made it plain, clear and publicly, that he did not want Joe Biden campaigning for him. Quote from Swazi, eight days before the election, quote, I can pretty much guarantee the president is not going to be coming to campaign. I don't think it would be helpful. Just as I don't think Donald Trump would be helpful to my opponent, end quote. The Republican candidate on Tuesday was a newcomer, 45-year-old Mazzy Pillip. Miss Pillip is an exotic There's no denying that. She was born and spent her childhood in Ethiopia. Her family were Jews, Ethiopian Jews, of whom there were many. They were evacuated to Israel in one of Ethiopia's innumerable civil wars. She served in the Israeli military and then married a Ukrainian Jewish college classmate. In her late 20s, they immigrated, legally, of course, to the USA. They live in the 3rd District and have seven children. As if all that wasn't sufficiently exotic, 
Ms. Pillip is a registered Democrat. What? Wait, didn't I say she was the Republican candidate on Tuesday? Yes, I did. Yes, she was. She also ran as a Republican for a seat in the county legislature three years ago, to which she was elected and then re-elected. But she's still a registered Democrat. I hope you can make sense of that. I can't. Not to keep you in suspense, listeners, but Tuesday's election went to the Democrat. I mean, the Democrat running on the Democratic ticket, not the Democrat running on the Republican ticket. Tom Swasey won the seat by 54% of the vote to 46 for Ms. Pillip. That's a decisive win and, of course, a disappointment for the GOP. It chops their House majority down to six, 219 to 213. Concerning that result, Peter Brimelow, the boss here at VDARE, posted on X, quote, was wondering if GOP knew what it was doing, running a black Jewish registered Democrat immigrant in this race or, for that matter, expelling Santos. Guess it didn't. End quote. That's worth parsing. Black? Miss Pillip, in common with many Ethiopians, isn't actually very black. Ethiopia's coastline looks across a few miles of water to the Arabian Peninsula, and there has been toing and froing across that water down through the ages. If you want the full story, I refer you to Carlton Coon's 1965 classic, The Living Races of Man. The people of Ethiopia get a full page and a half in my copy, pages 119 to 121. Sample quote, slightly edited. The least Negroid peoples of the highlands are the Ethiopians proper and the Galas. Both are essentially Caucasoid in body build and facial features. End quote. I recall reading somewhere, although not in Kuhn, that the late Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie would fly into a rage on hearing that someone had referred to him as black. He insisted that he was white. Although I believe there is now a revisionist school of historians who argue that Haile Selassie was, in fact, only somewhat Selassie. I'll allow, though, that American voters would regard Ms. Pillip as black. Did that make a difference? I doubt it. Barack Obama was black and exotic, but he won the third district in both his presidential runs. Demographically, the district is only 3% black, as against 84% white and Asian. So plainly, the non-blacks there are happy 
voting for an exotic black. Jewish? This is New York suburbs, though, and the wealthiest congressional district in the state. I wasn't surprised to learn that it's 13% Jewish. I doubt Miss Phillips' Jewishness worked against her. You may have noticed when I was talking legislative history back there that the two-term congressman for the 3rd District, prior to Tom Swasey's three terms, actually bore the surname Israel. Nor was I surprised to read that Tom Swasey has been strong for Israel in the recent Middle East dust-up. He made a point of thanking Jewish voters in his victory speech. Still parsing, registered Democrat, eh, it can't have helped any. Republican voters surely didn't like it, and running on one ticket while registered on the other doesn't exactly advertise political sophistication and competence. And then, immigrant. If the immigration issue was large in the minds of 3rd District voters on Tuesday, Miss Pillip should have won. Not only is she herself a legal immigrant, she's been loud and strong on border issues. So much so, she was endorsed on February 7th by the National Border Patrol Council, which represents 18,000 Border Patrol agents. Tom Swasey, by contrast, was rated a solid F- by Numbers USA on all immigration-related issues through all three of his previous congressional terms. 2017 to 2022. He was strong in support of the Schumer-Lankford border bill, the one that was so bad even Mitch McConnell had to renounce it at last. Immigration-wise, there are two ways to look at this result. Way number one, third district voters swallowed the tale put out by the establishment and its media shills. The tale was that the Schumer-Lankford bill was just the ticket to control the border invasion, but that, in the words of the Washington Post on Wednesday, quote, Republicans rejected it after Donald Trump urged them to do so, end quote. Way number two, the immigration issue was not large in the minds of third district voters on Tuesday. Did some significant number of third district voters think that Republicans in Congress squashed a good border bill from malice? Or do third district voters just not care that much about the issue? Neither possibility bodes well for November, but it's hard to say which bodes worse. I started out my January diary grumbling about New York, 
the state of which I am a tax-paying resident. Quote, I love my country, but I don't much like my state. End quote. Well, as bad as New York State may be, New York City is even worse. That came to mind the other day when I was watching video of New York City Mayor Eric Adams addressing a town hall meeting in Brooklyn at the end of January. There in the video was Mayor Adams standing holding a mic out in front of citizens who'd come to watch him speak. Seated in a long row some way behind him were 20 officers of the city, people who Adams had appointed. Here's a brief sound clip. Look at this team, folks. Look at this team. Look at my, look at my deputy mayors. First deputy mayor, Sheena Wright. Deputy mayor, stand up, stand up. They need to see you. Deputy mayor, Williams Ison. Deputy mayor, Mira Josie. Deputy mayor, Amazar. Deputy mayor, Maria Torres Springer. Have you ever seen this much chocolate leading the city of New York? And then go down the line. Look, look who's here. This is representative of the city. That's why people are hating on me. You trying to figure out why they're hating on me? They're hating on me because those who, how many of you go to church? Ma'am, this is a Matthew 21 and 12 moment. Jesus walked in the temple. He saw them doing wrong in the temple. He did what? He turned the table over. I went to City Hall to turn the table over. The five deputy mayors Adams named there comprise four mulattoes or quadroons, two of whom are apparently Hispanic, and one light-skinned Indian lady. And before proceeding, I cannot forbear telling you my favourite name of all the mayor's staffers. Tiffany Raspberry, his director of intergovernmental and external affairs. Another quadroon, or perhaps an octoroon. Not only did I get a smile from the lady's name, in fact, I got another one from her job title, Director of Intergovernmental and External Affairs. How can anyone acquainted with old British TV sitcoms not think of Sir Humphrey Appleby and his Department of Administrative Affairs? Anyway, there was Mayor Adams explaining that the low opinion in which he's held by the people of his city is caused by racism. And then doubling down by comparing himself to Jesus Christ. So, I guess the mayor's low poll ratings are nothing to do with the squalor and lawlessness he presides over. In particular... They are nothing to do with the battalions of illegal aliens crowded into city hotels, parks and schools, or sleeping on the city streets. To be perfectly fair to Mayor Adams, not all of what ails New York City is his fault. The illegal aliens, 
70,000 last time I checked, are a gift from Biden and Mayorkas, who show no interest in helping Adams out in any serious way. The lawlessness is the fruit of legal and judicial reforms driven by other elected officials. Big names here are Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and New York State Governor Kathy Hochul. Both are quite strongly opposed to sending anyone to jail for anything at all. Well, anyone, that is, whose name is not Donald Trump. Governor Hochul proposes to close five state prisons in the next fiscal year. Prisons are bad, bad places, you see. The inmates disproportionately black because of structural racism. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, whom Governor Hochul could dismiss if she wanted to, which of course she doesn't, so favours illegality, he made no objection to city courts releasing illegal aliens, five of them without bail, who attacked police officers last month. Biden, Mayorkas, Bragg and Hochul are just the big names. Adams is also up against 51 little names, the names of New York City council members, each elected to represent one of the city's districts. Paid for by George Soros's money, with voter turnout for their elections barely in two digits, and a mean political inclination slightly to the left of Kim Jong-un, these critters thwart even Mayor Adams' half-hearted efforts to fix things. Or to veto their further screwing up of things. In December, the City Council moved two new criminal justice bills. One bans solitary confinement in city jails. The other requires city cops to complete elaborate paperwork on every interaction with members of the public, no matter how trivial or inconsequential. Mayor Adams, who was once a city cop himself, vetoed both bills. The city council has overridden his vetoes. Adding insult to injury, the police documentation bill got seven more votes to override Adams' veto than the original bill got. This past week we've been learning that a lot of the city's swelling population of illegal alien criminals, including at least some of those involved in last month's assault on our police officers, belong to big organised South and Central American gangs. Two of the named gangs are Tren de Aragua of Venezuela and MS-13 of El Salvador. El Salvador, eh? Just last week I was congratulating Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele 
on his landslide win in that country's general election and on having transformed El Salvador from the most violent state in the world to the safest in all of the Americas. How did he do that? I told you. Why don't you listen? Quote, By massively expanding prison capacity, then incarcerating anyone cops tagged as a gang member. End quote. Other Latin American countries are following El Salvador's example. I expect to see more and more headlines like this one from the New York Times, February 7th. Headline. Terrorised by gangs, Ecuador embraces the hardline Noboa way. Daniel Noboa is the new president of Ecuador, elected last November. Daniel Noboa, I note, is 36 years old. Nayib Bukele, the El Salvador saviour, is 42. These two young men are building big new prisons and filling them with gangsters. The people of these countries love it. Hence Bukele's landslide election victory last week. Quote from that New York Times story about Ecuador, where the nation's military is helping police with the clean-up. Quote with inner quotes. When people see soldiers pass, many clap or give them a thumbs up. We applaud the iron fist. We celebrate it, said Guayaquil's mayor, Aquiles Alvarez. It has helped bring peace. End quotes. If I were a gangbanger in one of those countries, I would pack up and head elsewhere. An ideal destination would be some country with elderly, clueless leaders that were shutting down prisons and telling its judges to let criminals walk. News here from London. That city has a subway service, locally known as the Underground, or the Tube, connecting together the city and some of its inner suburbs. Here's a little-known fact about the Tube. For most of the first five years it was in service, back in the 1860s, you could ride a Tube train to go watch a hanging that is, a public execution. That is absolutely irrelevant to the main point here. I was just yielding to my fascination with odd facts. The tube itself is irrelevant, in fact. The news item I'm working from here is about the London Overground. You won't be astounded to hear that the overground is a surface complement to the underground, connecting city districts and suburbs. The overground's six lines each have a name. Until this month, the names were helpfully geographic, although sometimes 
regrettably clunky. The Highbury and Islington to Clapham Junction slash New Cross slash Crystal Palace slash West Croydon line, for example, or the Gospel Oak to Barking Riverside line. Clunky for sure, but you knew which line would take you where, so at least the names carried forward the old British fondness for practical common sense in everyday matters. But, old British fondness? We'll have no more of that. This is the 21st century, son. We need to celebrate diversity, not foul, antiquated, supremacist concepts like Britishness. So the stations are about to be renamed, and each is to be given its own distinct colour on a new map of the system. The mayor of London, a Muslim named Sadiq Khan, said the new names were, in a quote, honouring and celebrating different parts of London's unique local history and culture, end in a quote. So yes, the new names celebrate diversity. That Highbury and Islington to Clapham Junction, etc. line will now be the Windrush line. It goes through a bunch of black neighbourhoods, you see. It was a ship named the Empire Windrush that brought the first big group of black Caribbean settlers to Britain in 1948. The Gospel Oak to Barking Riverside line will be the Suffragette line. Barking, in the eastern inner suburbs of London, was home to Annie Huggett, an early 20th century campaigner for female suffrage. The Liverpool Street to Chesant slash Enfield Town slash Chingford line will be the Weaver line. It goes through old textile manufacturing districts, first established by Protestant refugees from France, persecuted by Louis XIV in the late 17th century. Asylum seekers, you see? The Stratford to Richmond slash Clapham Junction line becomes the Mildmay line named after a charity clinic in London's East End, famous for treating AIDS patients in the panic of the 1980s and 1990s. I presume this is a virtue signal to homosexuals, as AIDS was spread mainly by promiscuous homosexual buggery. The Euston to Watford line will be the Lioness line, in honour of the national women's soccer team, who are familiarly known as the Lionesses, to the 27 human beings who pay to watch women play soccer. The Romford to Upminster line will be the Liberty line. In pre-modern times, a Liberty was an area where some aspects of royal authority didn't apply. This line goes through Havering, which was a liberty from the 15th century to the 19th. 
This new name for the overground line, Mayor Khan tells us, is a reference to the wider freedom that is a, quote, defining feature of London, end quote. So yes, a wince-inducing collection of virtue signals there from London's mayor and government. It could have been worse, though as commenters on social media have had fun pointing out. At least Londoners didn't get a George Floyd line or a Yasser Arafat line. Nor a Caitlyn Jenner line, come to think of it. There are virtue signals to blacks, feminists, illegal aliens and gays, but nothing for trannies. Will his honour get away with that? Or will Londoners confused about their sex be out protesting in the streets for an overground line of their own? We shall see. I quoted London Mayor Sadiq Khan speaking of, quote, the wider freedom that is a defining feature of London, end quote. That freedom apparently does not include the freedom to sing Christian hymns or preach the Christian gospel in London's streets. Just in the past couple of weeks, there have been two cases of Metropolitan Police officers threatening to arrest people doing those things. The first case, two weeks ago, featured a young woman who set up a portable keyboard and sang gospel songs solo in central London's Oxford Street. Five police officers showed up and told her to move on. That, by the way, is five more police officers than Londoners get when they call in a house burglary. For that, the bobbies just tell you to come to the station house and fill in a form for your insurance company. Well, one of the cops told her, quote, You're not allowed to sing church songs outside of church grounds, end quote. That is not, in fact, true. The young singer was committing no offence. The Metropolitan Police Authority later apologised to her. The second case seems to have happened last weekend. A group of Christian missionaries was preaching the gospel on Uxbridge High Street in West London, outside a shopping centre. Again, a posse of police showed up. They threatened to arrest the missionaries for hate speech. After exchanges lasting nine minutes, the missionaries packed their gear and left. One of them filmed the encounter. The video clips have been posted on news and social media outlets. They do not reflect well on the police. There was no official apology in this second case. A spokesman for the force told the Daily Mail that, quote, Officers were responding to a report from a member of the public that a group of people were making racist and homophobic comments. The Met does not tolerate hate crime 
and officers responded to investigate this, end quote. The context here is the regular spectacle of mass worshipping and demonstrating in London streets by radical Muslims, while Metropolitan Police officers look on respectfully. Christian missionary activity is hate speech. The Muslim equivalent is diversity. You're not against diversity, are you? Of course not. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Where on earth are we going to put these millions of illegals that we've allowed in? Last month, I noted a new approach from the state of Massachusetts. The governor of that state... And I still don't understand why I can't say governess, but everyone assures me I can't. Uh, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey had appealed for citizens to take illegal aliens into their homes. Incredibly, people are responding affirmatively to her appeal. An NBC station up there has reported on a Haitian family of illegals who had been sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport. Then their two-year-old daughter got sick and they were lodged somehow at the hospital that was treating her. Now their troubles are over. They have been taken in by a nice white lady named Lisa. This is in Brookline, a modestly prosperous little town in central Massachusetts. The Haitian family, dad, mom and little girl, join the 3% of Brookline's population that is black. The wife cooks for Lisa, who told the NBC reporter that, quote, I feel like I have my own personal chef. Wasn't there a time, not very long ago, when every upper-middle-class American home had a black maid to do the cooking and cleaning? Or did I just dream that? Item. Back in Shakespeare's island, they're taking a different approach. The British government has been recruiting private landlords to a scheme in which the landlord gets five years of guaranteed rent paid, from public funds presumably, if they let their property to an illegal alien family. The Daily Mail, February 14th, quote, a stock of 16,000 rental properties for asylum seekers has been put together by the Home Office, even though there is an acute shortage of homes for young Britons and families. End quote. Read the comment thread at your own risk. Item. Tuesday the 13th was, as I told you last week, Shrove Tuesday, known to British urchins in my childhood as 
Pancake Day. Because that's what we ate on Shrove Tuesday. It was also a day for games of football. Back in the times before football, any variety of football, was an organised sport. These Shrove Tuesday ball games were an opportunity for sturdy young peasant lads to work off surplus energy. Of which they had a lot. Many limbs were broken and there were occasional fatalities. At least one of these extremely rough ball games has survived. The Atherston ball game, played at the village of Atherston in the English Midlands. There are pictures of Tuesday's game on the internet. At my age, the bones are somewhat fragile, so I certainly wouldn't want to be in that melee. The pictures of it warmed my heart nonetheless. Hundreds of healthy-looking young Englishmen jammed together, wrestling for a big leather ball. Filled with water, if I remember right. Females only visible as spectators at the side. Everyone's white, not a kefir in sight, not an Allahu Akbar to be heard. The whole thing looks as it must have looked 800 years ago when the custom originated. I keep telling you here on Radio Derb how the mother country has gone down the tubes. And yes, it's well on the way down, as the previous item illustrated. There are still some small patches of the old vitality, though. Long live the Atherston ball game. Item. This Sunday, February 18th, is the 70th birthday of actor, singer, songwriter John Travolta. I offer sincere and hearty best wishes to Mr Travolta on his 70th. With no disrespect to any of Travolta's later work, it was his role as Tony Manero in the 1977 movie Saturday Night Fever that really got my attention. Got it and held it. Reviewing that movie on its 30th anniversary in 2007, I got somewhat carried away, referring to it as, quote, one of the dozen or so best movies of all time, end quote. My review ended up at 3,700 words. That's about three times the average for even a serious review. 31 books of the Bible are shorter than that. So, once again, happy birthday, sir, and many more. That's the show, listeners. Thank you for your time and attention, for your emails and your generosity. Wednesday this week was, of course, St. Valentine's Day, offering an obvious song to use for my sign-off snippet. I yielded to that temptation once before, five years ago, using Chet Baker's lovely rendering of the song.
Rogers and Hart's My Funny Valentine. The song is generally assumed to have been written for a boy singing to a girl. That's Frank Sinatra's fault, as Sinatra's is the version that most people know. In fact, however, Rogers and Hart wrote the song for a female character in a musical, singing about her man. Valentine was the guy's name. So, to correct the balance here, I shall give you the Ella Fitzgerald version, which, unlike Baker's or Sinatra's, comes complete with intro. That offers another temptation, the temptation to boast, by no means for the first time, I'm sure, that I once saw Miss Fitzgerald perform in the flesh. And yes, there was rather a lot of flesh at that point, but the voice still came down direct from heaven. Taylor Swift, whoever you are, eat your heart out. Behold the way our fine feathered friend his virtue doth parade. Thou knowest not, my dim witted friend, the picture thou hast made. Thy vacant brow and thy tousled hair conceal thy good intent. Thou noble, upright, truthful, sincere, and slightly. Yeah. 